.NET Rocks is being sponsored today by Text Control, the company behind TX Text Control, a Microsoft Word-inspired document editor library and document processing engine for your applications. TX Text Control is fully customizable and programmable and is available for most platforms, including ASP.NET MVC, Web Forms, WPF, and Windows Forms. Recently, they released their Angular and Node.js versions that allow the integration of WYSIWYG document editing into your web apps. TX Text Control really shines in applications that do mail merging and reporting, where Microsoft Word-compatible templates are merged with JSON data in the client, or pure server-side applications that create Adobe PDF documents. So, try TX Text Control for free and see the live demos at textcontrol.com demos. If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The starter edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. It's .NET Rocks! I feel like I'm at a Manchester football game. Nice. Woo. You, you know, it's only a Manchester football game you get hit by a pint, so. <laughs> Close. I asked them to do you remember? Other, but nobody took them up on do it. Do you remember coming back from Manchester yeah. on a day when Man U was playing? Yeah, do you remember the, what the state of the... Uh, it was 11 o'clock in the morning, yeah. and there was... Just stacks of, of empty beers in every pub in the train station on the way yep. in. It was 11 o'clock in the morning. Right. They were just going to bed. Well, the game was at 2 and they were warming up. Right. Well, uh, Richard and I are here in good old London town. I am usually in a place called New London. It's kind of funny because New London is like two buildings in a street. Whereas London is... One homeless guy. His name is Bob. He'd really like a nickel. There's more than one. <laughs> but that's not important right now. Um, but yeah, and we actually have a, a Thames River, but we call it the Thames. The Thames. <laughs> but seriously, all my life growing up, oh, that's the Thames River. And then I came to London and I said, where's the Thames River? And they said, <laughs> you mean the Thames, love? <laughs> We also have a Norwich, but we call it Norwich. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't start that, but Norwich. And we also have a Greenwich, but we call it Greenwich. That one, actually, we get it right. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're here doing a panel on ethics of AI, and I would like to introduce the panel. I'd like them to introduce themselves. But first, we have this little matter of better know a framework. Roll that crazy music. All right, buddy, what do you got? You know, <laughs> every once in a while, a technology product comes along, and I look at it and I say, what the f***? <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those. It's the Oral-B Revolutionary Genius X Toothbrush 
With Bluetooth and artificial intelligence. <laughs> and it's a toothbrush. It's a toothbrush. Okay. Recognizes your brushing style. Hmm. Guides you to brush better every day. You brush like George Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have. I had a one of these when I was little. It's called my mother. <laughs> All she told you is you were doing it wrong. Powered by artificial intelligence, tracks where you brush and gives you real-time feedback for your best results every day. Connect your Genius X with the Oral-B app, ladies and gentlemen. You should be stalling toothbrush software on your phone. Every, every business in the world wants to have an app. And if it doesn't make any sense, some idiot's going to suggest a way that they can make it technology <laughs> Cloud, AI, whatever. Oh, wait, man, there's more. There's oh, more. wait, there's more. Unique round head, remove up to 100% more plaque. Gum pressure control. Man, they better send us some freaking money. After this, right? <laughs> Gum pressure control. Artificial intelligence. Motion sensors recognize your brushing style. We talked about that. Connect to the RLB. Lithium ion battery. In your that's, mouth. That's what I want to stick in my mouth. <laughs> Optional explosion. Plug in. <laughs> Anyway, that's what I got. Richard, who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off a show, 1623, the one we did right here in NDC London uh, last year when we were talking to Sarah Withy, and we were talking about the open source home assistant, the Mycroft. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was actually cool. And it was also time. It was no toothbrush. No, instead, this was a small box that looked at you because that's better. Yeah. Uh, But it I was interested in it because it didn't communicate with the cloud by default. Like right. You actually were in control of where your voice recordings were going. Yeah. You had some options there. And, that, and it was a really fun conversation. Lots of great comments on that show. But I want to read the silliest one because okay. it's that kind of day. Uh, this is from Brenton Boylan. And then, you know, it's a year ago. And he goes, mm-hmm. Richard mentioned his dog. And when don't I mention yeah, my yeah, dog, really? Right. And suddenly I was thinking about how cool it would be if my personal assistant was a dog. Forget smartwatches. A smart caller would mean I could ask my dog and he would respond like Doug from Pixar's Up. So you got it backwards. Actually, you're the dog's personal assistant. It's, 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 well, I'm going to put a collar on the dog. So now I can say, hey, Zach, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow? <laughs> and you go, it's going to be a great day tomorrow. We should hunt bears. Because <laughs> that's what my dog likes to do. Should, we, should I clear your schedule in the afternoon so we can hunt bears? <laughs> and this, the, You know what I like about that? You don't feel stupid talking to your dog. No. No. It's I mean, it's a little weird when the dog talks back. Right, right. <laughs> but imagine, you know, and this is exactly the point that Brent's making. You wouldn't, you know, your assistant would still be talking to you. And this sort of elevates the whole comfort pets thing. Right, right. Yeah. So, I think it's a good idea. Of course it's a good That's idea. It's actually a good idea. We need to put our voices, put voices onto our dogs. So, Brent, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .net rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to, to Facebook. Sometimes we publish to Google+, Plus, but it doesn't exist anymore, so it's a little right. bit harder. Kind of. And if you were to write a comment on Facebook and I read it on the show, we'd send you a copy of Music to Code By. Good stuff. And you can definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet and use your tweet brush. Ah. (laughs) 
How many people think I write those jokes beforehand? <laughs> Nobody, right? No, no, they're not that good. We have done like three versions of one and then, yeah. you know, clipped it in. Although half the time when we do that, you just leave it in as unedited. That's anyway. right. Kind of like we're going to do with this. Probably. Probably. <laughs> All right. So let's get to the panel. Uh, I would like them to introduce themselves, partly because I can't pronounce their names correctly mm-hmm. after a few glasses of wine. But, but let's just do that and we'll go uh, from... Can I say for the record, I do not have a glass of wine. That's right. And that is a crime. Yeah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Starting on stage right. All right. So you want me to start? My name is Brandon Satram. I'm going to pretend that the hi, Brandon, earlier was for me. So thank you all for that. That was great. (laughs) I appreciate it. And also, hi, Brandon. Thank you for the work you do. These guys don't pay you enough if you're listening. Okay. Uh, So I run the developer experience team at Particle. Particle is an IoT platform company. Uh, We make hardware, cloud services, a secure connectivity platform for connecting edge devices to the cloud, to third-party clouds, et cetera. A lot of what I've spent my time on over the last year, year and a half, has been edge and on-device machine learning. So actually, ML inferencing on microcontrollers, which is uh, pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, I have some particle devices. They're great. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I have a I didn't make them. <laughs> yeah, that's a darn shame, really. <laughs> so I'm Tess. Uh, I work at Microsoft as a software engineer and data scientist. And I just have to say, the AI-powered toothbrush. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> All of a sudden, your dentist like has access to your toothbrushing history records, and they're different. Yeah, yeah. Never mind. This can directly affect affect your dental insurance. Yeah. Right. Every you night. get cheaper insurance if you brush correctly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah get a discount. <laughs> Uh, hello, I'm Evelina Gabashova. I work as a research data scientist in the Alan Turing Institute, which is the British National Institute for Data Science and AI. Wow. Uh, as a part of the research engineering team. So we are the guys who know both the AI stuff and also how to program. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this panel because you've got a nice diversity of personalities and working in different roles as Perspectives. well. Perspectives. So, and, I mean, we went with a fairly generic title in the sense of, hey, it's 2020. Where are we at? Like, is it worse? Is it better? Are we getting a handle on on things? Certainly the social media privacy side is going great. Zuckerberg sells us good things every day. Can we summarize the message as don't do that? <laughs> don't be evil? That's not, my, that's not Google's motto anymore. I know. They that, took it out. Yeah, that's kind of disturbing, isn't it? It says something. Oh, yeah, anyway. It's not very measurable, though. Yes. You need an evil gauge. <laughs> yeah, we should just come up with some objective evil meter, and, and <laughs> then like, we'll be fine. There's a good use for AI, the evil meter. <laughs> <laughs> I do own the domain name techbillionaireorsupervillain.com <laughs> with an eye to, you know, who's closest to being Dr. No, right? You could, you could do, else. <laughs> well, you could do it as a questionnaire, right? It's like, do you own an island? Does that island have a volcano? <laughs> you sort of work your way down. The, can you fly yourself you know, into space? Yourself. Yes. I feel like Jeff Bezos is getting there. I think in his, I feel he's like building he's building his own spaceships, there. right? Yeah. Like that's going down the path. Yeah. So let, let's just start with this simple question. What's the biggest problem? What's the biggest problem? For me, one of the bigger problems is that uh, machine learning is at a stage where we realize how brittle it is, 
how uh, how much it only learns exactly what you give it. So we've been kind of a, on a hype, and I think on quite a good hype that kind of moved uh, machine learning forward um, to solve problems, but we're now realizing that the way we do machine learning today might not necessarily be the machine learning of the future, because we need something that maybe learns like has lifelong learning, has a little bit more learning than just mm. the small piece of data that we give it. I think people don't realize that machine learning is in some aspects exactly the same as software engineering or programming, where the computer does exactly what you tell it to do. Nothing more, nothing less. And machine learning does exactly the same. And if you have ever debugged a program randomly, then you know that you can like be very, very angry because the computer just does what you told it to do. But it's like an old yeah. testament God. Lots of rules and no mercy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and machine learning learns exactly what we give it as the data set uh, that we train it on with all the faults and everything. But we've also seen this whole explainable AI issue sort of arrive where we're building machine learning models and they're right a lot. And when they're wrong, we don't know why. Yes. <laughs> I think that's a yes. Yeah. Well, it's just, and it, and so it's like, you're, you're sort of saying it's doing exactly what we told it to do, which yeah, I don't deny. With, except with limited guess, data. Yeah. It's like, do we, so we've not known what we told it to do, that it's doing things we don't expect. I think our understanding of the weaknesses in the data are why we can't explain what comes out the other end. You know, yeah. we've talked about, I like to tell people machine learning is just human teaching. Mm -hmm. What we've kind of already said, you're telling the model <clears throat> or as you're going through the process of training, you're saying, okay, this is what I want to get out the other end. Here's your data. Here's your data set. Here's your parameters. This is exactly what I want from it. And if we build bias into the model, we get bias out on the other end. Sure, yeah. That's fundamentally the biggest problem. But a lot of times we don't stop to think is my data set bias. Right. We don't think about the dimensions by which it actually is going to give us the worst thing that we can expect to get out of the other end because we have an incomplete understanding of what yeah, we're Yeah, somehow we, we kind of, um, we know this, but still we think that it's going to have common sense. Yeah. And that right. it's going to um, somehow not make the mistakes that we teach them. Yeah. Is that because of the artificial intelligence tag that we just keep yeah. projecting it's going to be how? Maybe. If you look up images of artificial intelligence, you see all these robots. So people see it as a human thing. Right. But it's nothing like humans. No. But the thing that differentiates uh, machine learning from other forms of artificial intelligence is that it keeps um, adding to its uh, or keeps honing itself based on the outcomes. Is that like a, it, there's a feedback loop involved? Is that an accurate thing to say? If you build a feedback loop, there will be a feedback loop. But what makes it learning rather than just AI? The thing that makes it learning is the fact that as you're actually going through the process of training, effectively what happens is your weights and biases at the beginning of the training process are just pure guesses. And so the model basically chooses random numbers and then goes through, makes a prediction, determines how far off it was from the prediction, propagates that data back in right. to the weights tunes a little bit and goes forward again. So the learning process is that iterative loop of getting, of basically reducing the error through right. the iterative mm -hmm. process. But beyond that, it's not learning anything beyond what you tell it to because you give it yeah. the inputs and the answers and you're just having it create the closest correlation to where the error, so where the, the error approaches zero. Once you have a model in the field that you do continue to train it? 
It's test it. Yeah, if you design, you have to design it that it's way. Not, it's it, 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 yeah. certainly no defaults here. You do have to put that in. I guess the question is, is that an expected behavior that you should be continuing? Oh, or you absolutely like need to do that. And you load a new version kind of thing. No, but you do absolutely need to think about how you're right. going to retrain it because history is going to change. No matter what model you use or what model you train, the circumstances around data, whatever, whatever it is, even if it's like, say, say you have a predictive maintenance system. So predictive maintenance means that you're building something that's going to learn if something breaks or not. Now, if you continuously fix the errors that it breaks, then you have a different situations because those errors are not going to appear anymore. And now you have to retrain it to learn different errors or else you're n you're going to be stuck yeah, at Your model gets more and more incorrect. Yeah. But do you think people actually do it in practice? You are a smallish company, <coughs> get some consultancy to do some AI for you. They bring a model, you deploy it, it works. So um, I'm just well, worried that people don't really do it in practice. Yeah, no, I think it's it's the same as any other software where do you maintain it or do you not maintain well, it? My experience with the average customer is they... they They finish paying you as the consultant and mm -hmm. send you on your way. Some months later, I guess, when the data set yeah. is, is particularly no, you know, incorrect now, yeah. they're going to be surprised that it's like, yeah, you should have been retraining that. You can pay us to get back into it. But the thing you're talking about with the, uh, with the feedback loop, um, that comes up because you use uh, something we call a proxy. So, for example, if you're looking at something like... A crime that I was talking about in, in the keynote. And you say, we're not actually measuring crime. We're measuring the number of arrests. Or the number of reports. Mm. Yeah. Reports or whatever. And then if you keep reporting new things, because now you're sort of predicting that there's going to be crime, so you arrest more people, and you now feed that. So now your data has more arrests. And, and that now feeds into the system as this location has more arrests, for example equal more crime to the model, that's how you create the feedback loop. Like right. if you keep feeding in data that the model actually um, changes the the data that you're feeding in, that's how you create a feedback loop. So when we talk about ethics, we're really talking about trying to make sure that we're as bias-free as possible with our inputs. Is that really what it comes down to when we're I think, talking about uh, I think there is a That's we can't ever be bias-free because machine learning works on bias. Yeah. Um, so machine learning, the only way it works is by differentiating this from this, and it has yeah. to have some kind of information about why this is different than this. Right. What's bad is when that bias is something that we don't want. Yeah. So we want bias. We don't want <coughs> evil bias. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, I guess the question is, how do I detect bias in a data set ahead of time? Hmm. Or bad well, bias. There are right now quite a lot of uh, technical solutions to debiasing data, mm -hmm. but the problem is that you have to know what bias you want to remove. Right. So, and I, yeah, I guess again, I have to detect bias in a data set first. So I got an example. Uh, my friend Richard Morris lives in Australia, and he's got an Amazon Echo, and doesn't understand him mm. because it's been trained with. English speakers, American voices, American voices, and he's like, "Crocky, get me an Uber." <laughs> <You know? laughs> Alexa's like, "I'm sorry, I don't know that one." 
I, yeah. thought, I didn't know Richard Morris was like Steve Irwin. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not actually. Not. So let me give another aspect of that because uh, most machine learning, especially speech recognition, is made is done on English. Um, text recognition is done in English. Uh, right. Speech recognition. So that effectively, um, like if we're relying more and more on AI and machine learning for these kind of things, we're effectively excluding a large part of the the Earth's population that doesn't speak English because suddenly sure. these systems are not accessible to people who are not. He's also implying that Australians don't speak English. So. True. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's a different topic. So here's, here's a good thing. I did some work with the Google Cloud Platform, and their speech recognition engine requires you to enter in uh, the the dialect. The lang not only the language, but the dialect. So UK English, Canadian English, hey. hey. As if UK English, English is one thing. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? But, sure. But so then, obviously, it's using different models to recognize uh, speech based on, you know, that. So it just kind of makes me sad that, you know, when Alexa knows he's obviously in Australia and doesn't have that model loaded up. Mm. You know? But then what if you speak Swedish? Well, that might not even be an option in the system. You, but, but it might. But, but if you took the Google approach, right, then you, when you set it up, it knows what language you're speaking and uses that model. Mm. doesn't expect you to speak yeah. English. You, or with an you English. kind of think you'd be able to detect it. You would think. So why do we have to tell it? It's in Australia. <laughs> yeah, well, there's <laughs> that too. It's like but maybe there should be a model to detect yeah, maybe there's a an initial model that detects, uh, you know, a dialect or a culture, and then flips to a data set that's for that. Okay, I can see in the dark future where you come to I know Australia and start speaking at uh, some voice assistant, and yes. it will right. start speaking to you in Finnish so, or you know, something and, like yeah, that. As a Canadian who arrives in Australia, I'd be perfectly happy if the echo didn't understand. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't speak Canadian. Yes. <laughs> so obviously. Cultural bias is a big problem in AI, and especially when we're talking about crime, mm -hmm. and we're talking about trying to predict crime. And it almost seems like, just like you know, Google does with speech recognition, you have to have different models for different cultures that are input into the into the system, just because of you know the cultural differences, behavior differences, um, you know, schedule time things, whatever, whatever those differences are. I don't know what they are, but. Sometimes but, these things are fairly visible, like cultural differences. Right. Uh, I will plug in my tomorrow's talk that I'm giving in this very room before lunch, uh, where I have an example from a medical field where there is a program for melanoma detection. Uh, for what? Melanoma. melanoma. Oh, skin okay. Cancer. Pneumonia. Yeah, skin cancer oh, detection. Yeah. And it's approved for being used as a medical device in the European Union. Mm -hmm. And it works by looking at a photo of a skin mark, and it decides, okay, benign or malignant. Wow. Uh, works nicely, etc. But someone took it and did some research with it, where they took some of the benign marks hmm. and made violet surgical marks around them, like fake ones. The ones that surgeons make before extracting something. Right. And of course, in the moment there was violet in the picture, 100% uh, malignant. malignant. Yeah. Wow. But so that's a bias in the data set that the authors of this program didn't identify. But I bet right. that app can't brush your teeth. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, you know, I'm also thinking 
of the American system, which tends to be a little litigious, where the correct answer to is this, you know, lesion on my skin cancer is let's remove it and find out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> but I think the broad point there, the fact that a lot of times the biases that emerge from these networks, especially something that's based on a convolutional neural network where it's extracting features mm-hmm. based on images, it will extract things that we, even looking at thousands of photos, may not see. Right. And so a lot of times, though, that feature detection creates a, a, creates a, a bias that we don't even get to see until it's in the wild. And then we have to correct, step back, figure out sure. how to actually remove that by expanding the data set. And, and, and by that, if I'm a it. business owner, you know, so the overall responsibility side on this, I'm listening to this and thinking in terms of, okay, so we build the model, we put it out in the field and know there's going to be something incorrect and we're going to have to go back again. It's like, this to me seems very discouraging. Mm. You know, I, well, come to my talk tomorrow. I have examples <laughs> with uh, cognitive <laughs> services where a live, like, like a live demo where it just gets confused with very random issues. I love it. But, <laughs> but it, it, it works across from, from any of the services like, that are out there. When will this be right? And I, and I get the sense that the answer is never. And this is actually one of the aspects on the ethics side where even aside from privacy, where one of the concerns that a lot of people have is if you can create adversarial attacks against networks, right? Mm-hmm. By putting, you know, you've seen this a lot with the Hong Kong protesters have used this in a very pro-democracy way by wearing masks that will fool facial recognition. Right. Or you see places where people have actually fooled image detection of stop signs by strategically placing stickers mm-hmm. in certain parts. If you can fool the image just enough, or you fool the, the model just enough and you create, you know, you break the system, basically break the matrix, right? Well, you yeah. also can create a scenario where an automated driving vehicle will fail. Right, right. Kill Absolutely. Someone. So those sorts of adversarial attacks introduce a whole nother layer of ethics because on one side you could say, phenomenal, this is great that Hong Kong protesters can use this in a pro-democratic protest right. manner. At the same time, a bad actor can actually use it to fool a self-driving car right. system. Mm. Yeah. Well, How do you actually balance yeah, those two things? And you get, you, in the end, I mean, I'm going to have a hard time going against democracy, but in the end, there is a bias set there too, where we are, from our own cultural perspective, assigning good and bad to that and saying, okay, I want the bias of being pro-democracy. I don't want the other biases. Right. Hmm. And you see this when, you know, the, the whole hullabaloo around, around uh, facial recognition, there are two, there's two sides of this argument that are both completely valid, to be frank. They're... Those that will say no facial recognition, period, ever. I think the European Union is proposing that. Right. The Met police here has slowly rolled out sort of their own contrarian, like, no, we're going to do strategic facial recognition in certain populated populate areas. And their argument for doing it is to prevent... Public safety. Public safety. Yes. Right? Even though that model only... I think I read that the models that the Met is based on or based their detection system on were only accurate 9% of the time. So wow. there's sort of the perception of public safety... Versus actual public safety and the ethics of that, which can be an issue. But in any one of these but cases, so, you can... something about that never facial recognition seems seems luddite. Like it seems like this is not an acceptable strategy either. We because that says don't bother getting better at this then right. either. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. right. There are redeeming features. And I'm thinking about the story not that long ago about Taylor Swift of all things. Apparently, Taylor Swift currently holds the world record for the most number of restraining orders. that she has restraining orders against something like 3,000 people. Wow. And so there's no security team in the world that can memorize 3,000 faces to make sure they're following it all. And and (laughs) so there was a, 
a test at a concert of hers where they were using facial recognition on everyone coming into the stadium. And of there were two of the 3,000 that were mm-hmm. in the crowd. And so they were able to give those faces to the security guards to go find those two and get them out of there and, and keep her safe. I mean, this is an exceptional case, but it is a point. And, but the process of doing that meant that Every single person that went to that stadium had their face image. Yeah. But I think in a case like that, it's a little bit different because as you're going into that stadium, you're agreeing to being face recognized. Right. Mm. And, it, and, mm-hmm. that, and, that, and more relevantly to me, it's like, I don't care if you take my picture. I care what you do with it. Mm. We've been having our picture taken for a long time. It's only when they utilize the data that we start to get concerned. So, the, And this is where I get into, the, can we build up a set of policies that say, yeah, okay, if you're going to go into a public arena, you're going to be imaged, and that data is locked up without a court order, essentially. An interesting thing is that right now there are emerging methods that allow people to basically identify if a certain data point, like a face, mm-hmm. was used in training a model. Right, so that it would have a bias. So, mm. And then people could do attacks in terms of, oh, where you at that concert? Right. Well, if they have access to the model in some way, they would be able to tell. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine we could get we could start hashing faces too, right? So I don't actually mm. know the person, but I can match the hash. Can I just mm. say something about the perceived security thing? When you go to um, an airport, and this is something I read on Facebook the other day, when you go to an airport and you have like more than 100 milliliters of water yes. or something, the TSA agents throw that in a waste paper bin right by themselves, yeah. like the bomb, they throw that in there yeah. with all the other bombs. Yes. Right. <laughs> you know what That's TS- very interesting. TSA stands for, right? Toothpaste stealing asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a story, but first we need to take a brief pause for this very important message. Hey, Carl and Richard here. We'd like to tell you all about the upcoming conferences NDC is hosting all around the world. NDC DevOps Oslo will be March 11 to 13. Go to ndcdevops.com to register. NDC Copenhagen is April 1st through 3rd. Go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto will be April 21st through the 24th. So go to ndcporto.com to register. And check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. Uh, Brandon's here. Tess is here. Evelina's here. Richard and I are here at Stotnet Rocks. And we're in London with a great crowd. <laughs> wow, Reverend Billy's in the front row. Hey, rock on, Billy Hollis. Uh, I'm sure you have a lot to say, so we'll pass a microphone maybe around. Um, so there's a scenario that I heard about uh, a story, and it was on one of these great podcasts, Radio Lab or one of them. And uh, it was in Mexico, and they just horrible crime in Mexico. So this company, this American company, was contracted, and I can't remember if it was by the Mexican government. I don't remember the details, but they had built this ultra high resolution camera, and they flew it on drones that were so high that you could not see; they couldn't be detected, right? But they could take absolute stunning quality photos of the entire city of Mexico City, let's say. And I can't, again, I can't remember the details, but all at once, like, boom, Mexico City. And they have, you know, every five seconds they're taking another picture of it. 
And then they, you know, it's sending data back down in a control room somewhere. And so essentially, if there's a murder, which there are many, you know, the, the police call up this company and they say, yeah, it happened here at approximately this time. They zoom in on that place and they see the getaway car, right? And they see the thing happen. They can actually see cars and people. They can't make out faces, but they can see the cars. And they can rewind that to where the car came from. Oh, kind of like deja vu. Where the car's going. Mm -hmm. And tell the police, okay, it was and within seconds, you know, within minutes maybe. You know, this is where they are. Go bust them. And so everybody's like, great, this is amazing. Like, we're solving all these crimes. Yet there was a lot of blowback because, holy crap, you're taking pictures of the entire city. You all, You also got every... You know, infidelity. That they, when someone went off to a to yeah, sure. A hotel. I mean, it's all there if you want to go look for yeah, it. Yeah, every shoplifting attempt where they got out on the street and sorted out their goods. Right. Like, so this, you know, this is one of those great moral dilemmas, right? That I love to wrestle with. It still gets back to the same thing. What do you do with the data? Well, I want to know specifically what your opinion of that is. Like, where would you fall on the spectrum of we should do this all the time? Uh, this is great, great for solving crime, let's do it, versus, no, this is an invasion of privacy, we shouldn't do it. Where on the spectrum do you fall? Uh, I'm going to be a bit wishy-washy. I, so I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in privacy and liberty. I mean, being someone who grew up in a democrat, democratic country, I'm very pro-democracy. I, I, I believe that the liberties and the privacy of the populace are tantamount frankly and i think that as soon as you start to erode privacy it becomes a slippery slope and right. um while this can be kind of tricky because i do i do believe that these technologies can be used for good and they can be used to save us the same way that other laws that you know the, the same way that that gun safety can be used yeah. to save us and keep us safe there's a balance and these things need to be regulated and i think where i stand on this is that if we regulate this use of technology if we make sure that we have very, very strong policies around when data is collected and where and how it's used, if it's stored, if it's deleted, what have you. Because the ultimate thing you want is the outcome. And right. if the outcome you're trying to get is to solve a crime quickly, right. then let's scope what we're trying to do around how we get to that outcome right. and not record the entire city and keep that data for months and but months. But you right? can't predict where things are going to happen. Right. Well, maybe you can with machine learning, I swear, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of why we're here. But um, but in this case, you know, you can see the the dark side would be, okay, this contractor, let's say, um, you know, wants to hire some more people. They need some more money. So they start, you know, hiring out their services for nefarious people that want to, you know, for, for things that aren't solving crimes. Right. Mm. And there right. you go. It's classic corruption, right? And the bigger they get the more potential there is for that kind of abuse. Yeah. And that's why I tend to fall more on the side of liberty and privacy because right. I believe that the more the you erode time, that. At the same time, if somebody kills your family, you yeah. want you want to yeah. use these people. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think, yeah. So I think I gave my opinion on this in, in my, in my keynote, but I think that if we're looking at everything at every point, we're stifling like, 
humanity and where we're going because I think it's a good question of does it alter behavior if you know there's yeah. a camera up there well not only Truman that Trump. but what's illegal today might not be illegal tomorrow right. and and it might be that we have to change something some things that we deem is not appropriate today that might be appropriate tomorrow um, I think I would be more concerned about the other way around that an act that was legal at the time you did it is now illegal and there's a record of you now committing a legal act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about how about you? Uh, well, I'm the thing I'm afraid of is that there is no stopping this yeah. because the technology is out there, people are using it, governments are using it. Yeah. So what I would like to have is transparency around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't like some, I don't know, let's say Google coming in and uh, sort of paying to access the data to do something with it or any company or some contractors, etc. I want transparency and I want the same kind of control that is around health data, for example. Uh, yeah. We already have rules and regulations around like, can someone listen to your phone calls? Can someone you know, monitor what you're saying or doing, but somehow when it comes to, to like using uh, face recognition and things like that, it's suddenly a discussion again of yeah. how we use it. Well, you look at a country like Singapore where there's like no crime and it's because they're being watched all the time and they have social rules. And But then again, yeah, they the question have... Of, is it that? We happen to, you know, the correlation is not causation. True. Right. The fact that Singapore operates a surveillance state is, you know, undeniable. Yeah. Is that the reason there's no crime there? I don't know that that's true. Well, but, well, the punishment is pretty swift and they can find out. And so. that's a different element. That yeah. doesn't have to do with observation as so much as it has to do with the punishment behaviors. Well, okay. But the, we do know that, you know, people are afraid to even speak out against the government because yeah. they'll get a knock on the door and be taken away. Which, then, so where know, do you stand? Uh, that's a good question. I, 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 uh, like you, I tend to err on the side of liberty. If there was a way to ensure that, um, you know, these, this data could not be researched and accessed without, you know, security from an authority that has the authority to regulate it, as Brandon said, I would feel better about it. But the problem is leaving these companies unchecked to just do what they want with it, that's where the problem can, you know, so if you can stem the tide of corruption, you know, with even some of the security models that we have around in technology around, you know, two-factor authentication and tokens and things that that we already use, maybe maybe it could work. I mean, certainly good when it's for the purposes of good, but it can be so corrupted. The reality is, as Evelina said, it is here. And for every company like Clearview AI that we get wrapped around the axle because they scrape three billion, three billion images off the internet, the entire Chinese government is state mandating being a leader in AI by 2030. And yeah. capturing absolutely everything that happens capturing in the country absolutely everywhere everything. else. So right. we, even if it's only in the academic sphere, we still have to understand these technologies, figure out how to promote them, how mm. to reverse engineer other models as well, well and defensively. I would hope build an yeah. exemplar, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the real issue you have right now with uh, with state dominance like that is there is no example of a free society managing it well at this particular point. And I air quoted free society because that's a tricky concept all by itself, yeah, right? But 
you know, there, there is a case for us to race to a decent regulated model. So at least there's somebody talking. And, and for better or worse, I think the EU is in the lead yeah. right now for all of the problems that it has, right? For all of the flaws in the GDPR, at least there's something down on paper, mm-hmm. like something we can improve and can challenge and try and do better with. I mean, we're already seeing how democracy is changing because of data that's gathered. Yeah. Um, tomorrow is, I guess, a big sign of that. Big day for London, for, for the UK. Without and doubt, so it's, it's not that far off. No. Well, I, around uh, ethics in AI, you always see the acronym FAT. Uh, fairness, accountability, transparency. Mm-hmm. But right now, I he- heard I like new acronym. Better ethic with ethics, <laughs> fate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But Ooh, I heard nice. fast recently, oh, where okay. they added sustainability, uh-huh. meaning not sustainability in a software sense, but mm. in like, sustaining the society. Yeah. I actually like fat. <laughs> uh, Earlier, you were talking about the brittleness of, uh, of machine learning, and uh, I did read a piece from Professor Jeff Hinton, who was saying, we are heading into another AI winter. We're always heading into another AI <laughs> winter. Well, it, 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 it's interesting, too. You know, you're talking about a guy who's been through a couple. Like, most of us are newcomers to this technology and are having a good time. And we are much more the engineering side as opposed to the straight-up science side. Yeah. So, I guess he's not happy with a model. The set of models he happened to help lead and create, and now is saying, "Oh, we're going to go through this again." I just don't. Do you buy into that? Because I suspect we've committed enough money, resources, and energy. We're going to keep using the technology as it is, whether they're you know, the science is generating new versions or not. Well, a colleague of mine has uh, Ned Stark as his Twitter avatar, and, uh, <laughs> avatar on Slack, uh, saying, "Always oh, winter is coming." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there is so much hype around AI yes, and right. there are no like, radical technological advances. Mm-hmm. No, it sounds like we're polishing the, I, the core ideas that came in 2010, 2011. And they really, the nineties really, yeah. because a lot of the advances we have right now are due to hardware. Right. Yeah. So that was Hinton's point. I think it was even in the eighties where he said we could do this this backpropagation model, we just don't have the horsepower and yeah. sort of mm. put it on the shelf yeah. until... That's behind all the we can image mm. recognition stuff. Sure. Convolutional neural networks were here since yeah. 80s, mm. 90s. I don't think we, we're going to reverse what we have right now, but right. hopefully evolve it and, and have a um, higher like awareness of where the problems might be. And maybe, um, I mean, there are some great minds out there that are thinking about how we can... How we can change, because what we're having right now, convolutional neural networks, that's not going to be the future. That's probably not even going to be the future for the next But it few seems years. to be making some relatively useful products at the moment. Toothbrushes, for example. <laughs> Which, I mean, is actually going to, if we're entering anything, I don't know if I would call it an AI winter, but, you know, being that my company, we spend day in, day out in a similar space in the, with the, in the IoT we're entering the Gartner trough of disillusionment. Sure. Mm-hmm. Anyways, IoT has been in that space. AI, ML going in that space as well. And it's not a, the, the beauty of that, mo- of Gartner's model, uh, there is that you're actually entering a period where you've got this huge sustained amount of hype 
And it sort of cools off as everybody gets, you know, crazy with AI toothbrushes or the yeah. LED dog vests in the IoT world uh, example. And then you get to this place where people stop paying attention, except for the people that actually can see the promise. Right. And in can the future, create returns. And create returns. And then you start to see business expectations temper. Yeah. And you now you start to think about practical application as opposed to just AI for everything. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I then think it's interesting that the, that rebound the Gartner hype cycle is in some ways healthy. That yeah. we pour enough money and ideas in at the beginning that it gets stupid. Yeah. Then we strip away the stupid and get to the essence, and then we rebuild on the essence. And I think the the preponderance of negative press around AI, facial detection, things like that, actually helps strip away some of those things because we start to ask, okay, maybe we need better tools for unpacking black box models. So we yeah. have great emerging tools around AI. how Perfect. we can actually go to explainable AI. So we can start to look at what's going on inside this, where we have advances in the mobile and IoT space around federated learning, where you can actually distribute not only inferencing, but the uh, but retraining and fine-tuning back to a cloud and things like that, where you can actually start to get... Every time we run into a limitation or a problem, it becomes an opportunity to find, okay, what can we improve about our field in order to get to this next, to get to that next step? And that's what gets us out of that, out of that winter, I think. And we are headed down. I feel like we're headed down the trough. We have not bottomed. I don't know how you feel. I think that's uh, I, as a user, maybe not as a sort of person uh, gaining money from the AI hype, but as a user, I'm looking forward to an AI winter. <laughs> <laughs> because what happened over the last AI winter is that people focused more on human-computer interaction. Right. Yeah. And right now we are just trying to deploy all these AI models that will work on, the, on their own and solve everything, which is not going to be the case. So I want people to focus on uh, how can we work better with AI? How can we get better to, together with some AI-assisted system? And I think that phrase AI-assisted uh, is becoming more prevalent. That this is not about replacement of work so much as it is amplification of work. Uh, you mentioned the skin cancer piece, but I've been watching the radiological analysis. But every step of the way, it's the tool is really good at finding anomalies but you still need a radiologist to look at it and go, is this anomaly relevant? Yeah. And often, but you're also seeing radiologists say, the tool did a great job of pulling, of finding something unusual that I may have missed. That's usually not the case, though. Okay. Because these models are good for finding the typical cases. Right. Not that the you have cases. a lot of training data for. Interesting. But the exceptions are the hard ones. Right. Because you want the system to tell you, I don't know what this is. And that's actually really hard to train that's for that. That's not what it's good at. So you, you, you know, it's I'm, good to find the sort of yeah. the standard so, type so of cancer. Say the topic like, uh, and like that. Um, sometimes it's interesting to think about um, when someone wants to sprinkle AI on a problem and what on, they really are need. Are you channeling is, your inner Jonathan Brown right now? Yeah. So you, you could have rubbed AI on yeah. it, right? Yeah. Okay? And what they really need is like a few SQL uh, statements and then they'll be done. Um, but when you start, instead of always trying to figure, uh, trying to figure out a way to have like a neural network find something, and you start looking at the data instead, quite often, or at least this has been the case for me and the products that I worked on, um, there's been some simpler solutions mm -hmm. to the problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe in the case of looking at, um, a cancer, um, biopsy, um, using something like color decomposition. So in that case, what they do is like they, and uh, they have a chemical that reacts with, um, 
with cancerous cells and colors them brown or blue or whatever it might be. And something as simple as, as just bringing out the blues of the mm. picture and making that faster to detect mm -hmm. might solve half of the problem and actually speed it up enough that we don't necessarily even need um, machine learning or AI for this and make it in a safer way. So I'm very interested in the cases uh, where we can actually look at the data and do software engineering, like classic software engineering tools that are more explainable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then leave, for example, machine learning and deep learning for something where we're having a little bit more trouble figuring out the actual rules. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to do sets of iterations around of that. Like I've often had, the, the my favorite explanation has been, for a long time, we built software by having a set of inputs, we wrote a set of rules, we got outputs. And that machine learning was, I have a set of inputs, I have a set of outputs, machine learning builds me the rules. And I, I want to, you know, we do sometimes struggle as programmers with figuring out all of the rules when we're doing classical computing. You wonder if you couldn't use some machine learning models that would bring you rules you hadn't considered. It's still very much an explainable AI model. We're doing it too much black box. It has to be. It's doing the rules that just won't tell you what they are. Mm -hmm. All right. I'd like, but the idea that I could sick a tool on a data set on an input set, and it would find it would find a bunch of inferences that are potentially useful. That then I could declare those as useful rules or not useful rules. That could definitely be mm -hmm. a case for describing yeah. a decision tree. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but so, so it's the 1970s again. Yes. Is it? Okay. Excellent. Right. I need to program in more Lisp. <laughs> I feel good. <laughs> I did the other day. Oh it no. Was, it was not that. You fun. had a list. It's not fun. That's a lot of brackets. Nobody needs that many brackets. I remember it being more fun. <laughs> hey, we got we got a few minutes left, and I'd like to get some input from the audience, some questions. I know you have them. I don't think we have a microphone for the we audience. Yeah. If we do, we that's great. Right. But we'll call them out. But we'll call, we'll, uh, we'll uh, repeat your questions. So, anybody have a question for the panel? Right here in front. So, you had a request to open your data lake to... Open the database as a data lake. Oh, open the database as a data lake to somebody else. But you have no idea how it will be used. Oh, and I love that idea of shouldn't we have a set of policies when we're going to expose our data on, on demanding how it's going to be used and what the limits and rules are on that. So, who is demanding it? Do you mind me asking? <laughs> was it the government? <laughs> Come on, it was the government. Is okay, it data on toothbrushing? Yeah. <laughs> Do, do you do, do any of you have a sort of a template you use with the considerations of we're about to expose our data to these analytical tools? You know, should we have some policy before we start? You know, I mean, there are simple cases where, and I, I've seen this even in in what I do day in and day out, where when you when you come to an organization that has a a metrics problem, right? Even if it's internal tools, right? We may need to know about our customers buying X product from the e-commerce store. Are they mm. doing, you know, you have a set of questions you want to answer and you know the data is in there. So you just want to get at it. It's not a bad thing to want to know. A lot of businesses are trying to get insight around how their business is running so that they can continue to fund the things that make sense and then cut off funding to the things that don't make mm. sense. Even still, the open access of like, hey, just give us access, just give us the Mongo login and it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. Famous last words. Yeah, definitely gets me, would get me a little bit confused. I would, I would ask and I typically do questions on what are we hoping to get? What kinds of things are we trying to achieve? And what's going to be our framework for controlling access? So there are great tools out there like Mode and Snowflake and others that can actually help you. It's not so much an AI thing, but basically run exploratory SQL queries against a data set without 
giving the end customer right access or, or being able to restrict the sort of tables they have access to and Absolutely. things like that can mm. be. And I, I would point out, like, I'm so glad you think that way. <laughs> uh, well, because it speaks to the modern role. You know, you could call yourself a DBA and, and hide behind it. Well, I'm just responsible for SQL Server. But in reality, your job is, is a steward of data for the organization. I'm responsible for the collection, retention, protection, and distribution of data. And I want to know what the heck you're going to do with it. Right? But like I a, think also, for example, with GDPR, if it's human-related data. Any personal identifiable information. Yeah. Like you already yeah. have laws that say, I can't do this for you. I'm sorry. All right. Let's get another question. Anyone back here? Yeah, go ahead. It comes in a squirt bottle. Just spray it on. <laughs> so, so the question is, his product team is doing the classic, you know, do you have an AI squirt bottle we can squirt on the project? And uh, not understanding what that is or involves, is there any kind of, you're saying, is there any kind of guidance? Or, What's the response? Is there any kind of response, like a <clears throat> chaff that you can placate <laughs> the product team with, Right. Play, placator and rage. As a former product manager, I would actually turn to your PMs and ask, are you willing to spend 10 times longer on this project than you intended to? Nice. Because the reality is you're going to spend almost all of your time in data preparation, data cleansing, yeah, all cleaning. of the, the AI piece is the payoff is so minor compared to everything else that they have to do. And, and interesting that that cleansing process is beneficial to all kinds of other systems sure. anyway. Yeah, yeah. Although, I mean, my automatic response when non-technical people roll out today's technical buzzword is so when you say artificial intelligence what do you mean what do you mean exactly because that'll just make them spin around in circles for an hour and i yeah. can get like, a sandwich <laughs> or something it's like i'll leave you with that you yeah. figure that out yeah we are getting this question quite often sort mm -hmm. of oh we need we have this problem how can we solve it with ai even from some government agencies right. etc and As opposed to the more sensible question, which is, would AI benefit this problem? Probably and not, because you didn't formulate the problem right yes, even in, in the, the first, first place. place. in particular? So okay. we are struggling with how to define what's a good problem to be solved by machine learning. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Okay, another one right here in front. Have we heard of the object.net data set? I'm sorry, what did you say? It was an MIT, IBM yeah. thing? Yeah. It's a data set? Yeah. That does what? Right. So if, if it's an opt-in system to be able to use it, you'll be leaving people out who don't have access to it. And the vast majority of people, if you, if GDPR is a thing. Yeah. Anybody heard of that? The object? No? I think we'll have to discuss that over a scotch later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. So I hear, I think I hear what you're saying. You're saying you go to all these sites and your, your preferences um, they know your preferences of what you, your music that you like and the books that you like and the movies that you watch, but you don't want them to... Like a confirmation bias bubble. So uh, what's the question exactly? Like, how do you fix that? How do you fix that? Yeah. yeah. So uh, um, I'm going to answer that is quickly by, you can't use machine learning alone in a case like that. You would have to um, somehow have like a curated way to inject other things into the system. And, and I think something like Spotify is quite good at injecting um, new music for you. And hopefully, like um, Facebook and other... Um, I think the obvious answer is to make a fake person and get a P.O. box and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> screw them. No, I don't know. Billy, do you have a question? 
Right, come okay. on up here, brother. Yeah, come well, on up. I'll lend you. Billy mic. Hollis, everybody. I know Billy thinks deeply about these things. I've been giving fake birthdays and fake middle initials and fake zip codes to online databases for decades. Okay. Now, if somebody sold an applique that would go on my face and I could get my DMV, my driver's license <laughs> picture taken with it, and they wouldn't notice, but it would screw up the facial recognition, I would buy it. <laughs> all right. So, so all you criminals, that programmers so, out there, let's make this happen. So my question is, how many paranoid people like me are there? Is it enough? That it, is that data poisoning a problem? And do you expect it to become more of a problem in the future? Good question. I think it absolutely will. I mean, look no further than the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. I mean, the model that has been created there is that if state surveillance becomes a thing that we resist, we will resist and we'll continue to do so. So yeah. even though it may not in, in, you know, democratic countries, it probably would take quite a bit longer to catch on. It's inevitable that the more pervasive that surveillance becomes, the more likely we are to find even commercial products that allow us to game these types of systems. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. We're not helpless. As much as there's a certain amount of industry out there that is encouraging us to feel helpless, it's a lie. Yeah. And we can resist and choose to fight back and choose to insist on more. I, I mean, I, and I worry about the United States especially, where there's been a systematic sort of insistence that government's incompetent. And, mm. and it's like, it is not true. We can choose to make it incompetent or we can choose to make it work for us. Mm -hmm. We just have to fight for it. Right. Indeed, and I think that brings us just to about the end of another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. Another big hand for our panel. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks! .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a